This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Not so long ago in this program, we voiced the wish that we might be able to talk about some other stuff besides COVID-19. I guess it's a classic example of how you should be careful about what you wish for because you just might get it. So the discussions we're going to have today about uh, protests are going to be a little bit different than the ones we've been having of late. Although surprisingly, there appear to be some, shall we say, intermixing of the two. So it seems. We'll talk about that later in the segment. I want to start with a very interesting little factoid that's been rummaging around and uh, has failed to make the show the last time or two. This comes from the excellent briefing section of The Week magazine. It was titled, How Pandemics Change Society. It had one little item in there that I was unaware of, which is fascinating, and I, I hope you will find it so as well. The briefing starts off talking about the bubonic plague and the various waves of it that have swept over the globe. Three different pandemics, in fact. But what attracted my eye first off was the 1802 outbreak of yellow fever that took place in Haiti. This triggered a chain of events that led to the expansion of the United States. The story is that the virus transmitted by mosquitoes, yellow fever, killed about 50,000 French troops who'd been sent to Haiti to try and reconquer it against the rebellious forces there. There had been a slave uprising on Haiti that was successful. Napoleon sent in his troops to take it back, but 50,000 of them at least died from yellow fever. This was so economically damaging to France that Napoleon said to hell with it and decided to sell off 823,000 square miles of French-claimed territory in North America, the famous Louisiana Purchase, to Thomas Jefferson for the bargain rate of $15 million. So it was that a yellow fever epidemic on the island of Haiti led to the rapid expansion of United States territory. But here's the one I find even more fascinating. In 1918, as we long, in 1918, the H1N1 influenza virus evidently started in a Kansas poultry farm, hit a bunch of U.S. soldiers stationed in Kansas, about to be shipped over to Europe, and took the virus all over the world. Naturally, it spread like wildfire among soldiers in the trenches of France and Belgium, and from them around the globe. The pandemic influenced the course of the First World War, but here's what I didn't know, contributed to the second. At least that's according to Laura Spinney, author of a book on the Spanish flu. That virus killed about 50 million people worldwide, with a world population of 1.5 billion, meaning it killed about every 30th person. It struck down 675,000 Americans when we had a population of about 107 million, giving it a death rate of something like 0.6%. But it turns out that among those struck down at first were a number of American delegates to the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. The famous Treaty of Versailles came out of that conference. The Americans were opposed to making German reparations a condition of the treaty. Unfortunately for history, with a lot of the Americans missing, sick with the flu, delegates approved the punishing reparations on Germany. 
and the humiliation that the Germans felt was, by all accounts, a key contributor to Hitler's rise and World War II. I guess we can't say for sure whether those Americans present at the conference would have swung the vote the other way, but it certainly was possible. And over the years, we've had a couple of programs that touched on the subject of World War I. always thought it was interesting that uh, the Kaiser and Germany was blamed for wanting to expand all over the world and take the world over, accused of that by the French and British, who were busy doing exactly that. Anyway, a most intriguing what-if, eh? Anyway, coming forward to June 2020, we've got a few updates in uh, the viral news. Well, we have a ton of updates in viral news. Let's start with the fact that the CDC has taken a close look at when the virus first arrived in the U.S., and they have concluded that it got here no earlier than mid-January. We've probably all heard a lot of speculation about the fact that it might have gotten here in December, but the conclusion they're coming to is that those folks probably had the regular old flu. For this study, the CDC collaborated with health officials in six states as well as genetics researchers and disease modelers from the Seattle area. The conclusions are the new coronavirus emerged in Wuhan, China late last year. The first U.S. infection to be identified was a traveler, a Washington state man who returned from Wuhan on January 15th and sought help in a clinic on January 19th. The White House, of course, announced a ban on travelers from China on January 31st. Of course, by then, in the month of January, uh, you hear numbers of um, 300,000 people coming to the U.S. from China. I'm not sure what the exact number was, but it's, you know, it's in the six figures. Anyway, the ban from China got implemented on February 3rd, although (laughs) there's all this evidence we have that something like 30 or 40,000 people have come to the U.S. from China since then. But it was implemented on February 3rd, and it's noted that before that, some travelers were screened for symptoms at some airports. Only later did health officials realize the virus could spread before symptoms showed up, rendering symptom-based screening rather imperfect. And as you may well recall, White House officials in February declared the virus was contained and not a current risk to the American public. Until late February, coronavirus infections were too rarely diagnosed by emergency departments to be identified as a growing epidemic, the study found. And of course, it also found that limited spread in some communities was occurring in late January and early February. Then we have a story here from the AP noting that throughout January, the WHO publicly praised China for what it called a speedy response to the new coronavirus and thanked the Chinese government for sharing the genetic map of the virus, quote, immediately, unquote. But, in fact, Chinese officials sat on releasing the genetic map or genome of the deadly virus for over a week after multiple government labs had fully decoded it, not sharing details key to designing tests, drugs, and vaccines. Health officials only released the genome after a Chinese lab published it ahead of authorities. That was on a virology website on January 11th. Even then, China stalled for at least two weeks more on giving WHO the details it needed, according to recordings of multiple internal meetings held by the UN Health Agency in January, all at a time when the outbreak arguably might have been dramatically slowed. The AP notes that this story behind the early response to the pandemic comes at a time when the WHO is under siege. Donald Trump cut off ties to the WHO last week after blasting the agency for allegedly colluding with China to hide the extent of 
of the epidemic. China's Xi Jinping, on the other hand, has said that China has always provided information to WHO and the world, quote, in a most timely fashion, unquote. The news agency notes that this new information does not support the narrative of either the U.S. or China, but portrays an agency now stuck in the middle that was more urgently trying to solicit more data. Although international law obliges countries to report information to WHO, it could have an impact on public health, the UN agency has, in fact, no enforcement powers. It must rely on the cooperation of member states. The AP found that rather than colluding with China, the WHO was itself largely kept in the dark as China gave it only the minimal information required. So there you have it. A lot of blame for bad behavior in the U.S., but a lot of blame for bad behavior in China. Of course, now, arguing, pointing the fingers back and forth at one another and trying to institute trade barriers is probably not what needs to be done. But I think we need to keep in mind what was done badly in the past so that we can keep in mind what is being done badly right now and what will be done badly in the near future and not so near future. Because I think we're going to have a lot of all the above. Since we are taking a glance back at things gone wrong, let us take a look at the article that appeared in the Washington Post titled A Tragic Homecoming. This should dovetail very nicely with the chat we had with our correspondent, Dr. Sean Killam, describing his return to the U.S. from the island of Grenada. Let's take a glance back at the U.S.'s travel ban from Europe. The Washington Post piece by Greg Miller, Josh Dawsey, and Aaron Davis notes that the Trump administration's chaotic ban on travel from Europe did not slow down the coronavirus and, in fact, made it spread even faster. Here's why. On the day that Donald Trump announced in his Oval Office address that we will be suspending all travel from Europe to the U.S. for the next 30 days, that would be March 11th, on the other side of the Atlantic, a kid named Jack Siebert, he was an American college student spending a semester in Spain, was battling raging headaches, shortness of breath, and fevers that touched 104. Concerned about his condition for travel, but alarmed by the president's announcement, his parents scrambled to book a flight home for their son, an impulse shared by thousands of Americans who rushed to get flights out of Europe back home. When Siebert arrived in Chicago's O'Hare International Airport three days later, as the new U.S. restrictions, including mandatory medical screening, went into effect, he encountered crowds of people packed in tight corridors. He stood in lines which he snaked past other travelers for nearly five hours, all the while trying to direct any cough or sneeze into his sleeve. When he finally reached the coronavirus checkout point near baggage pickup, Siebert reported his prior symptoms and described his exposure in Spain. The screeners waved him through with a cursory temperature check. He was given instructions to self-isolate that struck him as absurd given the conditions he had just encountered. I can guarantee you that people were infected in the transatlantic gauntlet, said Siebert, who tested positive for the virus two days later. It was people passing through a pinhole. And of course, at the heart of the problem we're describing here is the chaotic and undisciplined response of the Trump White House. On March 13th, the day the European travel restrictions were implemented, there were only 3,700 confirmed COVID cases in the U.S. and just 176 deaths. For much of the preceding month, Trump had predicted the virus would quickly recede and downplayed its severity. He declared on March 10th, it will go away. That was one day before his address in the Oval Office. Just, just stay calm, he said. It will go away. 
Behind the scenes, however, senior officials have been agitating for weeks to consider extending travel restrictions beyond China. After the WHO declared the coronavirus a global pandemic on March 11th, members of the Administration Coronavirus Task Force and other White House officials gathered in a tense meeting in the Cabinet Room. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin was against a ban on travel from Europe. He was vociferously arguing about its potentially damaging effects on the economy. But others, including Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor, and Alex Azar, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, argued the U.S. could no longer justify the risk of allowing travel from Europe to continue unimpeded. Trump sided with the majority, but the magnitude of the undertaking, constricting one of the busiest air travel corridors on the planet, seemed to escape him. And the logistical requirements of implementing this plan on a 48-hour timetable were not even meaningfully discussed, officials said. Instead, Trump and his inner circle seem focused on staging the announcement for maximum political impact. Anyway, I advise all of you to look up and read this article. It's quite fascinating. The fact of the matter is, by the time they instituted a travel ban, the horse was out of the barn. That's according to Stuart Ray, professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University and an expert on infectious diseases. The virus was already too widespread in the U.S. for travel curbs alone to make any difference. The plan also depended on authorities' ability to trace individuals exposed by incoming travelers. This entails obtaining passenger manifests from airlines and contacting anyone who sat within several rows of someone who tests positive. But that protocol was rendered pointless by the chaos found in airports. And if you think we're getting ahead of this by contact tracing following testing, you might be disturbed to note that a CDC spokesman was quoted in the article as saying the center has conducted contact tracing investigations on nine, nine Europe to United States flights since the restrictions began. Nine. We've been concerned for some time in this program about what's going to happen when we relax the restrictions on people's social activities across this country. And in our second segment today, we're going to be joined by someone who can give us a first-hand report of what it's like to travel from California to Florida and back. In this instance, by automobile. Happened to run across a clip of Rachel Maddow talking about all of this on her MSNBC program. And she echoed uh, the same stuff we've talked about here, which is that at this point in time, there are so many more people out there infected with the virus that... um, your danger level is much higher now than it has been in the past. If we had more time today, we, we'd run that clip, but, but I think we're a little pressed. This might be a good moment to pause and inject just a little bit of humor into today's show. I had to laugh. Admit, well, one has to laugh at many of the headlines that have been appearing that all seem to tie into the virus. One attracted my attention from the leisure section of the week, the food and drink section. The title was... The title of the article was Bagna Cauda, the anchovy sauce you need right now. Now, I admit, there's a lot of things we need right now, but I was not aware of the fact that anchovy sauce was one of them. And because newspapers are basically, um, well, let's just say, on auxiliary of the real estate industry, at least in California and, and probably in most places across the country, they're always trying to pump in good news about housing. So it was, I noticed in the East Bay Time a few days ago, an article titled, Your Home's Value, It's Still Rising. The subheadline was, Pandemic Doesn't Stop Bay Area Prices from Rising Third Straight Month. This caused me to recall our favorite comedian, Will Durst's comment, which I believe he repeated on this program, in reference to the fact that 
the government admitted it had a plan to continue delivering the mail in case of a nuclear holocaust. This caused Mr. Durst to point out with some glee that this was good news. While cities were destroyed and the countryside on fire and you were fighting dogs in the street for food, it was good to know that you could still win the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes. And we did note the absence of late of Dr. Anthony Fauci. Apparently he uh, uh, raised the ire of the president when he said a couple of weeks ago that, uh, well, reopening the country too quickly would not be good. He stressed the unknown effects the coronavirus could have on children returning to school, among other things. Trump said he wants to play all sides of the equation before he bragged that the economy next year would be, quote-unquote, phenomenal. I was quite surprised to see that Dr. Fauci did reappear this morning in a news item wherein he noted that there could be 100 million doses of coronavirus vaccine available by the first of the year. I thought that was a very odd thing for him to say since, as reported on this program and elsewhere, the world record for the fastest developed vaccine has been four years. So I looked up what the story was about and apparently... There are some vaccines out there. Uh, Fochi was referring to one in particular that's now entering uh, phase three trials that they could go pedal of the metal on your manufacturing so that by the end of the year, there might be 100 million doses available. Now, if the vaccine works, that'll be good. But of course, at this point in time, nobody's sure that the vaccine will work or that it will not be plagued with side effects. They just don't know yet. Anyway, the key to a successful vaccine uh, has to do with the fact that um, the vaccine can induce antibody that is protective. There is some good news on that front. New research suggests that nearly everyone who has had the disease creates antibodies to the virus. Some scientists had worried that only people who suffered severe symptoms would create antibodies in sufficient numbers, and it appears that uh, that fear has been dispelled by a study showing that antibody levels in the blood didn't vary by age, sex, or severity of symptoms. Although the tests also showed that it was sometimes necessary to go three weeks before testing for antibody because sometimes it took that long to see the level rise, which is, you know, not surprising. The big question, of course, is, is the antibody we produce protective? Will it, in fact, neutralize the virus? We don't know yet. Got a call from a friend a few days ago asking me about uh, this supposedly lead doctor in Italy saying that uh, the coronavirus uh, is apparently becoming less lethal in Italy. He apparently said, we cannot demonstrate the virus has mutated, but we cannot ignore that our clinical findings have dramatically improved. These comments, which received widespread attention following a Reuters report, prompted vigorous pushback from top officials at the WHO, including Michael Ryan, who said we need to be exceptionally careful not to create a sense that all of a sudden the virus, by its own volition, has now decided to be less pathogenic. That's not the case at all. And the consensus among other experts interviewed recently is that the clinical findings in Italy do not reflect any change in the virus itself. Andrew Neumer, an epidemiologist at my alma mater, the University of California at Irvine, said the virus hasn't lost function on the timescale of two months. Loss of function is something I expect over a timescale of years. 
Reporting on this, the Washington Post notes that people in the U.S. are collectively holding their breath to see if there's an uptick in cases in response to the reopening of the economy, which we here at Radio Parallax are extremely confident we will, in fact, see. A close friend of mine who's involved in testing for the virus saw an uptick after Mother's Day. A couple weeks later, more people got sick. Memorial Day is now behind us, and we think that two to three weeks after that, let's just say... June 15th, we're going to see where that's going. After all, it takes around five days, up to 14 days for an infection to result in symptoms, and then there's a further time lag before someone seeks a test and gets a result. Let's see where we are on June 15th. And then there's the matter of the protests roiling this nation, which we need to talk about for a few minutes. As we speak in the microphone at this moment, the Secretary of Defense has announced that it is not an appropriate use of active military to quell rioting and or stop protests. This is not sitting well with the president. He's apparently already been irked with the Secretary of Defense. Of course, who hasn't he been irked with? But we're glad to see that someone, at least, is pushing back against this guy. One thing's for certain, these protests around the death of George Floyd, murder is the more appropriate term in the hands of the police, has shown a lot of people to have forgotten their social distancing and forgotten their wearing of masks, etc., and is bound to make all of the COVID-19 spread that much worse. We were hoping to uh, get a first-hand report from one of our correspondents who was tear-gassed in San Jose as a result of what he described as an over-exuberant response by the police to the protest that was going on around them. Need to know more about the particulars in that case, and hopefully he will come on the show next week to fill us in. In the middle of all this, it, there seems to be no doubt that the President of the United States decided to clear the streets using tear gas as necessary so that he could walk a block for a photo op in which he holds a Bible up in front of a church. There are reports that he was holding the Bible upside down and backwards. We can't confirm that, but it seems right, doesn't it? He was asked if it was a family Bible, to which he responded, it's a Bible. And unfortunately, when the protests turn away from being nonviolent into something involving looting, the starting of fires, the smashing of shop windows, etc., this is very bad for the cause of civil rights and just very bad every way you want to look at it. It does appear that in some instances, the crowds have been goaded to take violent action. We'll try and run down some of those stories in the not-too-distant future. An intriguing report appeared in the East Bay Times from a Matthew Fonsiulu, described as compliance associate at financial technology company in San Francisco. He moved to the Bay Area two years ago from New York. He noted in his op-ed piece he moved to San Francisco because of the progressive integrity it always seemed to emanate. He reported that although many of us wanted to keep the protests in the Bay Area nonviolent, here's what happened to me. What had been an idyllic and meaningful day of protest changed when the sun went down. He said the situation turned on those of us who wanted the protest to remain nonviolent. He said the first instance of violence he saw was as he's walking down Market Street approaching 6th Street. He said, I was in front of the crowd as we approached the CVS store. A man with a crowbar who was not among the protesters was waiting for the crowd to pass him, seemingly so that he could have the anonymity of the passing march to break into the store. Of several hundred people, the vast majority pulled out their phones and watched the looting that ensued. 
Said Mr. Franciulo, most people are hurting right now, especially the urban outdoorsmen who sleep outside in tents every night across the city. He said, however, standing around and watching acts that are undeniably unjust is precisely why, one, the protesters are marching in the first place, and two, three Minneapolis cops were rightfully fired when they did nothing to save George Floyd from death. When the crowd lost interest, we made our way down Market Street. One man yelled, what are we doing? Let's go to Union Square and F.S. up. Caught up in everything, he yelled, the, caught up in everything, Franciolo yelled back, no, we're not looting. Additional expletives were shouted at me, and 60 seconds later, the man came back at me with what I would later determine was a 42-inch orange traffic delineator. The cones on the highway that serve the purpose, the orange dividers on the highway that serve the purpose of cones but weigh 30 pounds. The man approached me while screaming that I disrespected him. I said nothing, flashed a peace sign, and then didn't move a muscle until he knocked me to the ground with a delineator. A few people jumped in to stop him. He hit one of them with a delineator and punched another guy in the face. Closed by noting on Sunday, Mayor London Breed imposed a curfew. Without experiencing what happened Saturday night for myself, I would have been vehemently opposed to a curfew. I probably would have gone so far as to call it un-American, but today I understand the mayor's actions. But as always, there's two sides to this story. The Economist, writing in its May 23rd issue, took a look at some of these people out protesting on the steps of the nation's capitals. They noted that in more than 30 of America's 50 state capitals, crowds have been gathering to protest against stay-at-home orders, buoyed by treats from the president encouraging them to liberate their states. A few among them, toting assault weapons, are dressed incongruously in Hawaiian shirts. The Economist notes that might seem comical were it not for the fact that in some corners of the Internet, such leisure wear is recognized as the uniform of the extreme right. Some among the far right style themselves as Boogaloo Boys or Bujahadeen. This refers to a belief in an imminent Boogaloo, an armed insurrection against the American government, a race war, or both. The term is tortuously derived from Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo, a film about breakdancing made in 1984. Boogaloo Boys imagined the forthcoming confrontation as a repeat of the Civil War. The Hawaiian shirts that dot the crowds are a reference to the Big Luau, another name for the Boogaloo, which celebrates pig, parentheses, police roasts. And of course, a Luau is a traditional Hawaiian feast. These shirt wearers are usually adherents of accelerationism, a strange marriage of Marxism and neo Nazism, which holds that the contradictions of the economic and political order will cause it to collapse. From the ruins, a nation built on blood and soil will arise. They see the virus both as proof of accelerationist truth and an excellent opportunity to hasten the system's demise. And I'm sure they're taking advantage of the current protest to continue to do likewise. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. After a short break, we're going to talk about taking a trip across the United States of America and seeing what one will see. Stay tuned for that. <laughs> 